Well, hello, everyone. Good morning. Uh, good morning to everyone who's here. W- wonderful to see your faces. If you're in the parking lot or if you're uh, tuning into the live stream, just want to say hi. We welcome you. Very glad to be here. If, uh, if we haven't met, my name is Paul. I'm one of the ministers here on staff, and uh, we're going to be bringing today's lesson. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 32. Uh, don't have to go too far. It's page uh, 27, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. Today we are opening a series of messages, uh, Glory, if you want to bring it up here, called Weird Tales. And I'm very excited about this because we believe this thing is the Word of God. We believe that this book was given to us to show us who God is, ears, who God is, to show us his character. But let's call it what this is. This is also full of very weird and strange things. And we're just going to embrace the weird. It's kind of just a little bit of a play of, you know, everyone's thinking Halloween and October's so kind of weird, spooky tales. We're not here to scare you, but they're going to admit that the Bible has some weird stuff in it. And this is something that I've always really appreciated about the Bible, is that when it comes to the heroes of the Bible, we don't really see them being heroic. I mean, we always lie about uh, who our heroes are. I mean, there's a story, you know, you have George Washington and the cherry tree, or there's a story about him throwing like a coin or something over the Potomac. I don't know how that qualifies you to be a president, but uh, it's just we have these stories that seem to be nonsense. We're not talking about mythology here. We're talking about real stories. And what we find is that the heroes of the Bible are rarely heroic. Uh, They actually, what we see is that before God gets a hold of them, there's a lifetime full of failures followed by face plants, followed by stepping on rakes. I mean, until God gets a hold of them, these nincompoops, are, he uses them to use, do something glorious. On their own, they're worthless. But when God gets a hold of them, he changes their story, and they, uh, they do something wonderful. And so we've titled today's weird tale, God in a Headlock. And this is the story of Jacob. God is often referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Jacob is one of the patriarchs of the Jewish people. And to this day, they bear the name that God would give them at the end of the story. Jacob's is is the story of a man who fights or he wrestles with God his entire life. And we're going to talk about what it means for us today and what we can learn when we wrestle with the truth of who God is. But before we jump into, into today's text, I want to give you the backstory of Jacob because it's wild. All right, we first run into Jacob in Genesis 28. Uh, Jacob is a twin. He has an older brother named Esau. And his entire life, uh, since Esau was born first, Jacob has been fighting and striving with his brothers. I mean, if you have a sibling, you understand sibling rivalry. It goes to level 100 with these two. Uh, in their mother knew this in the womb, that in the womb, they were doing top rope wrestling matches with each other, saying like, man, these guys are going at it. And even when Esau was born first, when he came out, Jacob was holding on to his heel. I mean, one of them was escaping, the other one was trying to pull him back in. That's how they came out of the womb. And throughout their lives, uh, you have these two, and they're very different people. They're very different boys. Uh, their father, Isaac, the patriarch of this family, he favored Esau. And, and I can admit, I can relate to this very well because I have an older brother. He's about two years older than me, and we are very, very different people. And when we were growing up, my brother was athletic. He did Little League. I was in Little League, but I liked to pick dandelions. I didn't really play baseball, but... Uh, um, <laughs> So I was in Little League, and, and he would play football, and that was the type of guy my dad was. And so uh, for me, I was, 
you know, I would stay at home. I was practicing piano. Um, I would do cross-stitching with my mom. Not one of my prouder things to admit, <laughs> but uh, uh, that's, and so my, my dad would be able to play with my brother. They could play baseball or whatever, and, and then he looks at me, and there's nine-year-old Paul with bifocals, true story, <laughs> when I was nine years old, uh, playing the piano. He didn't really know how to relate to him. Now, my dad didn't really play favorites, but we had to find a path towards, uh, to, uh, towards that, those things we could find in common, and for Isaac, though, Isaac played favorites. It was very clear. Isaac favored Esau. The mom, Rebecca, favored Jacob. I mean, so Esau would come in after killing that day's meal, and Isaac would be like, that's my boy. And then Jacob, meanwhile, is in the corner reading books, listening to My Chemical Romance. He's writing computer programs. I mean, who knows? So uh, this is the, the difference between them. Now, Jacob could not physically dominate Esau, and so he relied on his cleverness. And Jacob wanted what his older brother had because the firstborn had the blessing. And in context, the blessing was twofold. First of all, you had the material wealth because the firstborn would receive the vast majority of the household wealth once the father died. And the second part was the power, this favored position in the family. It was known that the firstborn, the family line carried on through the firstborn. And so Jacob wanted that favored position. Uh, and Jacob would work his entire life scheming, trying to think one, two, three steps ahead of his brother in order to attain this goal. There's this famous story where Esau comes in after hunting, and he, he's famished. He said, I'm about to die. I'm so hungry. And when he sees Jacob is cooking a stew, uh, he said, hey, bro, give me some of your stew. And Jacob says, well, give me your blessing or give me your inheritance. And he's like, sure, give me the stew. I mean, Esau is a very impulsive guy. Uh, and Jacob knew what he was taking advantage of. And we read later that when Isaac was very old, he also, at the end of his life, he was blind. And he knew he was about to die, so it's time to pass on the blessing. And uh, again, so Jacob said, here's my window, here's my opportunity. And he schemes with his mom, and the Bible's not kind to Esau. It says he's a hairy man. Multiple times, he's very, very hairy. Jacob covers his arms in wool so that when Isaac grabbed his arm, said, ah, that's my son. (laughs) All right, very hairy dude. And also, apparently, he had a smell. Uh, I don't know how Jacob duplicated this, but the opening words when Isaac felt the arm said, ah, the smell of my son. Again, weirdness, guys. We're leaning into it. Uh, this is how Jake, Isaac knew it was Esau. And, but no, Isaac passes on the blessing thinking that he was blessing Esau and didn't realize he was blessing Jacob. But the fact is, the mistake didn't matter. The blessing was irrevocable. So Jacob schemed and lied and connived his way into getting what he wanted, which was this blessing. And when Esau found out, he was so ticked, he said, the second my dad dies, I'm going to kill my brother. And it's sad. Jacob had to flee for his life. He finally got the thing he had worked his whole life towards getting, and he couldn't stay and enjoy the fruits of his labor. He had to leave. Otherwise, he was going to die. He tried to make it his own way, and it didn't work. Jacob cheats his brother. He lies to his father, and he runs away to a land. He goes away from the blessing to a land he has no blessing in. But God is still with him, and on his journey, he meets a girl named Rachel. And right away, you know, love at first sight. This is the girl I want to marry. And he goes to uh, Rachel's father and says, and the father says, okay, you can marry my daughter, but first you need to work seven years for me to pay off the dowry. And then you can marry my daughter. So Jacob works the seven years. And this, the wedding night is one of my favorite parts of the Bible because it's just so wonderfully weird. Uh, Genesis 29, verse 25 is after, after the wedding night, the next morning, Jacob wakes up, wakes up, and if you read it in your Bible, it says, behold, it was Leah. 
Or I like the NIV. I think it's funny too. He wakes up and there was Leah. <laughs> Leah was the other sister. Uh, Leah was the older sister Jacob didn't want to marry. And so how in the world did Jacob not realize until the morning he had the wrong sister? If you're thinking what an idiot, you're right. All right, and you know all guys are good. But Jacob goes to the father and says, dude, you gave me the wrong daughter. And the father says, oh, well, you didn't expect me to marry off my younger daughter before the older. Now just work another seven years for me and then you can marry Rachel too. Okay, this is, this is the preamble to today's story. This is the type of life Jacob was living to this point. And so to illustrate this, we, we're going to be using uh, some things. If you, ever, if you want to know this resource, it's called the Action Bible. It's kind of like turns the Bible into a comic book. Uh, I don't think their theology is the best, but, <laughs> but for the illustrations, we're going to use this here. So Jacob has two sisters and wives, and he, these two sisters as wives and two servants who gave him children. He has 11 sons and a bunch of daughters in all of his possessions. He was in this land he actually was not supposed to be blessed in. He was getting a lot of blessing. And his father-in-law became threatened by the enormity of Jacob's success. And so Jacob, once again, had to flee for his life. And he says, I have no choice. I have to go home. I have to go make this right with Esau. And so Jacob, he, this is where we meet him at the beginning of our tale. He, he sends writers out ahead of him to, to announce to Esau, I'm coming with my family. And uh, so go check out, see kind of where Esau's head's at. And in typical Esau fashion, he says, well, dude, he has 400 fighting men. Jacob has wives and children and camels and flocks. He doesn't have, if it turns into a fight, Jacob is toast. And so, again, Jacob being clever, he comes up with the plan. He decides to split up his household. He moves his wife in, one wife and half of his household in one direction, and the other wife and the other half in, in another direction. And meanwhile, he takes offerings of camels and, uh, and cattle, and he sends a whole bunch of treasures and bribes over to Esau, essentially to say, hey, I am humbling myself before you. You're the older one. He moves his family in the middle of the night, and he says goodbye to them, and they leave him alone. And I want, want us to put ourselves in Jacob's position here, because you think about the enormity of what was going on here. You're at the ford of a river, and you have just sent everything away. You go from being part of a caravan of hundreds of people and flocks and, and this giant moving house, and now you're all alone. You're by yourself. And the night gets darker. Your campfire wears down, and you're worrying about a stronger brother who you know you can't beat coming to beat you to death. That's what you're worried about. And the night just gets darker, and it gets to the point you can't even see your hand in front of your face. All you can hear is the moving water of the river and what you think is your imagination just filling out the sounds of the night. And you realize all of a sudden you're not alone. That out of the darkness a man emerges. So what do you do? Well, if you're Jacob, you just go, come at me, bro. Let's do this. So let's get into the text in verse 32, or sorry, chapter 32, verse 24. Jacob was left alone, and there a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. And Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. 
And then the man said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men, and you have prevailed. And Jacob asked, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket. It sounds delicious. I don't know why. But because, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. I forgot to say, I love how they make God look like Thor here. This is just, I mean, God... Uh, God's a blonde. I didn't know if you knew this. Anyways, all right. It's important for us to remember that Jacob was alone in this moment. When he encountered God, he was alone. Because we have a world that's full of distractions, don't we? For Jacob, he had a gaggle of children. He had cows and camels and, and, and servants. I mean, solitude is probably pretty hard for him to come by among his household. And I always find myself, I mean, constantly, if I'm ever driving somewhere or mowing the lawn or doing something, it's, uh, I'm always putting earbuds in to listen to music or podcasts or whatever it is, but uh, we fill our lives up with things that absolutely don't matter. Because, and, but then when it comes to having a prayer life or having a time of study, nope, I don't have enough time for that. We have more resources at our disposal to have just those things than we ever have before, and yet we still find ways not to do them. But when all the ridiculousness of this world is taken away from you, the true test of faith comes when it's just you and God. I've talked to so many people who they feel that they're neutral in their walk. They believe that there's a God, but they just can't, they can't get into it. They just can't get there. They just don't feel it. They have a hard time committing to a walk with Christ. They aren't part of the church, but they might come to it, but they're not a part of it. And why does this happen? And I think it's because we have this tendency to attach God to a place. We experience this place and we might get a spiritual high or the right feeling or we have connections with people who challenge our lives or we think that that is what experiencing God is. But our God will never be confined to a box. Whether that box is the size of this building or if it's the entire planet, God has no interest in lowering himself to our expectations. He will always blow them out of the water. At the end of the day, when you truly encounter God, it's not going to be based on where you are. You are going to be alone. You don't need the right environment to draw near to God. I've had people try to tell me, as the, the worship ministry here, they say, you know, here's what I need in order to be able to get to God. No, you need to draw to God in spite of your environment. The problem of faith for so many of us is that we have never tried to face God alone. We've used experiences or conferences or a Sunday morning service if it happens to be cool enough and we get that feeling that this is it. This is what I'm looking for. When in reality, all you've done is fallen in love with the environment that you're in and you forget about the God of the environment. And I've been fortunate enough not to lose a loved one yet, but I'm told that when a spouse dies... Your friends are going to gather, and with all sincerity, they will support you and promise to be there with you. But the fact of the matter is, until you face that first night alone, you have not experienced the depth of your grief. And I have to tell you, if you want to walk this life with God, a test is going to come when you are all alone. It's just you and him. And you're going to find out if your relationship's real. And this is what happens with Jacob. This is the night that would change the course of his life forever. 
This happened when he was isolated from everything else in his life that Jacob thought was defining who he was. And he actually put himself in a position where he was available to God. But when God shows up, naturally, they start wrestling. (laughs) And, I mean, Jacob's wrestling in the womb. I mean, we might have called this. Who started the match? I want to know. The Bible doesn't tell us, but my money's on Jacob. And Jacob wrestles this guy all night, and he sees that he can't win. And so Jacob latches onto him and says, tell me your name. And the man says, why do you ask me my name? And if you want to reinterpret that passage, I think it's safe to say, Jacob, you know who I am. Have you ever wrestled with God? Can you relate to this imagery? And I've watched my share of wrestling. My, my little brother made it to the state championship in wrestling. Uh, Ethan's been getting into wrestling a little bit. So I've spent many hours in sweaty gyms watching people wrestling. I can't do it myself. But you realize quickly that wrestling is not about your favorite move. It's about the counter moves that you can make from your opponent. And the ultimate goal is to counter the moves of your opponent until you get them to submit. You pin them to the ground or they give up or you make enough of the right moves that at the end of the match, the referee raises your hand because you made the right moves. It's always moves and counter moves. And so we ask, I ask you, have you ever wrestled with God? And you may say that wrestling sounds like it could be a good thing or a bad thing and you're right. Sometimes we wrestle with God because we don't like what he's doing And sometimes we wrestle with God because we're trying to figure out who he is. And that's what we're talking about today. For many of us, and I want to be very clear, do not misconstrue what I'm about to say. I am not against our country. I am, count myself, so blessed to be an American, all the blessings that are afforded me by being a part of this country. But there is a thought that is so prevalent in our culture that is directly anti-biblical that I feel like I need to call this out. We're told that we are to be independent and strong and to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Where in the world do you get that? Because the Bible calls us to be reliant on God, to submit to him, and to pay attention to God, not try to get God to pay attention to us. And so in this context, I ask you, do you wrestle with God? When God says that you are to be holy and merciful as I am holy and merciful, do we counter that? Do we fight against that? Because that's who God is. We like to pick and choose parts of the Bible, what we're going to pay attention to. We refuse to believe certain passages because my God can't be violent. He can't be narrow. There can't just be one way to him. He can't have wrath. If I'm convinced in my own heart that what I'm doing is good for me, or if it feels so good, how could it be wrong? There's no way I could believe in a God who tells me that it's wrong. If that's what you think, then you don't want a God. You're the God. Because when God reveals himself to us and says, here's who I am, the Bible tells us this clearly. Scripture shows us who God is. What is sin? What are the consequences of sin? If you don't like the picture of the God that you see in the Scripture, at least be intellectually honest with yourself and say that I don't want to follow him. Don't just reinvent a God of your own making, of your own imagination. But we fight. When God says that this is the way it has to be because I'm God, Most of us walk away at that point. When Jacob's name becomes Israel, and this becomes a paradigm for the generations that came after Jacob would live by this. God says to his people, I want you to do this, and they say, no. And sometimes God says, I want to comfort you because I see how you have broken yourselves, and they say, no, to that as well, okay? If you ever had a three-year-old, you know how this goes. Uh, I have to ask, will you have a God who tells you that you're wrong? Because if we worship God only because we agree with him, then we have misunderstood worship. 
And I want to pose this more practically. Some of us have been taught that if we do everything right, then God won't let our lives collapse. We think that if we live a right life, we we won't have a season of loneliness or depression. If I obey the rules, God's never going to let me lose my job. In fact, he's going to let me make more money. And I have to tell you, God never promises that. God doesn't say that I'm going to create environments, environments for you that are so pleasing and comfortable that you love me. God says, I will go with you to every situation you're in. And your environment is not always going to be what you want it to be, but I will be there with you. I'll be your strength. I'll be your hope. And we have to wrestle with God to understand him. To see the moves that he's making in the world and to get along with his moves so that when we come to a point where he says it's this way and we say it's another way, we need to let him pin us. We need to understand the freedom in submitting to him. So each one of us has to wrestle with God and to understand who he is. And that wrestling is going to be difficult, but we will see what God does and we can respond to what God does because we believe that he is almighty God, not the God of our making, not the God of our minds or the God of our desires. But when he reveals himself to us, we get to respond. Because when you encounter God, it's always a victory through loss. And this is tough in our culture because we play to win. But the Bible says, yes, you can win. But the only way you're going to win is by losing. And I want to explain this to you with a series of questions. Who's the stronger one in this story? In verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. Jacob knew who it was when he said, hey, tell me your name. Because the guy says, hey, the sun's about to come up, I gotta go. The guy's either a vampire... Or Jacob knows he's wrestling with God because no one can see the face of God and what? And live. So when the sun's coming up, I've got to go. He touches Jacob's hip and hurts him badly, but Jacob latches on. Now, parents, have you ever had a child and you're in the pool together? You know how they kind of latch on you? They all of a sudden get that he-man strength where they can latch on you? I had this experience a couple months ago in Ramona Park where Ethan wanted to swim out to the buoy. I'm like, okay, buddy, and realized he was very intent on drowning me as long as he could float. So <laughs> he, he was a lot stronger than me in that moment. But he, he latches onto him. You could probably relate to that way Jacob is, no, I will not let go. So if this, rest, if this match was all about physical strength, couldn't God have just destroyed Jacob? I mean, but what did God do? He wrestled with him all night long because God was using his merciful power, not his divine or majestic power. And so, to illustrate this again, dads, I mean, if you've been a dad, you probably wrestled with your kids. If you've ever wrestled an eight-year-old, at any point of your choosing, could you not pick up that child and end the match immediately and eternally if that's what you wanted? Of course you could. But what does God choose to do? He ends it mercifully. He is teaching his child that any time I can end this. But how did God demonstrate his strength? Through weakness. So who won the match? Well, God got up and walked away, and Jacob limped away. And I like to think that this was Jacob's big fish story. You know, like, hey, Jacob, the rest of his life, Jacob had a limp. Hey, why are you walking like that? Well, you know, one night, you know, wrestled with God. Took him eight hours to get me. Like, sure he did, dude. Okay. (laughs) But, so who won this match? Both of them did. 
God won because he was able to get Jacob to reacquaint himself with the one he had actually been wrestling with his whole life. Jacob thought it was Esau, but it was with God. And Jacob won because he lived. The fact that Jacob did not immediately become a grease spot on the ground is one of the greatest victories a man could ever experience. And he, so Jacob holds on to him and he cries out, bless me. His entire life, this is Jacob's one-track mind. Bless me, I'm, get the blessing, get the blessing. He lies to his dad, he cheats his brother, he gets his mom in on it, and he does everything he possibly can to gain an advantage. But that moment, in that moment, he refused to let go because he realized that if God did not bless him, he would never be blessed. And what was the blessing? It wasn't land or flocks or money or even power. It was that he knew the presence of God. I got to be in the presence of God and live to tell you about it. This is the lesson Jacob learned, and it's one we all need to learn. The purpose of Christianity is not, how do I get God to give me the things that I think that I want? The purpose is to be introduced to a God that is so far above us, yet he is still drawn close to us. A God that is so much holier and other than us that we can't even understand him, but he has given us glimpses of himself so that we might come to know him and to give our allegiance to him. That's the purpose of Christianity. It's not to connive and to steal and to lie and to cheat. It's not the American dream or to check off the right boxes on the right list and somehow obligate God to bless us. It's to surrender to what God wants. But until we wrestle with the reality of God, then we're never going to truly let him pin us. I said it last week, God never asks us to do something that he didn't already do. Jesus, our Lord, he won by choosing weakness. And instead of coming in his majestic power, like you would see in the book of Revelation, that's the power that he's going to come back in. But when he came to earth, he came as a baby. He came as the most vulnerable creature on this planet. He lived a human life and suffered death so that you and I could live. And something I learned this week, now when God touches Jacob's hip, you could also translate that body part as groin. So to illustrate this further, Abraham, who's Jacob's grandfather, he made a covenant with one of his servants to go and find a wife for his son Isaac. And this is how they made this public sign of the covenant. Abraham would take his hand and put it on the inner thigh of the servant, and his servant put his hand on the inner thigh of Abraham. It's, it's weird. If you never want me to do that again, that's okay. But this is how they do it. And this was to signify, it's on my generations. It's on those who I reproduce who are going to proclaim the name of God. On those generations, I am making you this promise. And so scholars will say that when the angel touched Jacob's hip, that this was to signify that the many generations that are going to come from you are actually coming from me, the Father. And he changes his name from Jacob to Israel. And the 12 tribes of Israel all came from this one father. And God makes a promise to Israel, and Jesus is the fruit of that promise. Now, if you think that a bad hip and a a limp for the rest of your life is a tough price to pay for a wrestling match, I want you to listen to Isaiah 53 in verse 4. Surely, talking about Jesus, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. And afflicted. They thought the Son of God was rejected by his own dad. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. 
as we draw to a close, our band's going to come on up. And we're going to sing another song here in a second. But if you're thinking right now that it's problematic to wrestle with God, I want you to notice God isn't chastised for wrestling. But, or sorry, Jacob is not chastised for wrestling with God. God says, I know you need to work this out. And I promise you, I can take it. Come and wrestle with the reality of who I am. Sometimes we're going to need to do that. But I've got to tell you, when you discover the power of our God, lay down. Just let him pin you. Because with God, your brokenness no longer defines you. Jacob came into this wrestling match as a conniving, lying thief who was afraid of his brother was going to kill him for what he was. But he came out of that match as Israel. He wrestled with God and lived to tell the tale. From that point forward, in his character, we see a man who is much more humble and he would become a part of God's divine plan that brought us Jesus. God can't fix your past. It's already happened. But what he can do is rewrite the ending. No matter how bad, no matter how hopeless, there is nothing beyond our God's ability to redeem for his glory. But first, you've got to submit. Submit to his will above your own and watch him change your story. You might have a limp when it's all said and done, but I've got to ask you, church, isn't it better to limp the rest of your life of faith than to run away in fear? But the only way you and I win is when we submit and surrender to the one who first wrestled with sin and died on our behalf. Let's stand and worship him.